You're listening to On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library. Welcome back to a new season of On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library System. I'm Abby, here with my co-host, EJ. That's right. I'm EJ. Happy New Year and welcome to Season 7, Dear Listeners. In today's episode, we're sharing how to grow, learn, and connect at all eight branches of JMRL. We're also sharing our rundown results and our first installment of our new overbooked title, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dewar. The Rundown is a new segment this season. EJ and I will zip through a check-in questionnaire so that you can keep track of what we're currently reading, watching, and learning. We'll also be surprising each other with one new out-of-the-blue question each round. But before the rundown, let's jump in to how you can grow, learn, and connect these next two weeks at JMRL. At Central, celebrate National Hat Day on Sunday, January 15th by making your own hat. The event is for ages 6 through 12 from 2 to 3 p.m. At Crozet, come to the Let It Snow Storytime on Saturday, January 21st at 10 a.m. At Gordon, no registration is required for their weekly story time on Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. Reading Rumpus. At Green, the Cookbook Book Club is meeting on Tuesday, January 17th at 6 p.m. Come prepared to eat. At Louisa, anyone interested in writing can attend the next Writers Unite meeting Thursday, January 26th at 4 p.m. At Nelson, the Brown Bag Book Club, which welcomes new members, is meeting on Monday, January 23rd at 1 p.m. to discuss Emma by Jane Austen. At Northside, anyone wishing to practice English can join the English Conversation Circle Tuesday, January 17th at 10.30 a.m. At Scottsville, there will be a drop-in job help event on Saturday, January 21st from 1 to 3 p.m. Bring your resume, cover letter, questions, and curiosities. As always, check the calendar to find more information and how to register. And now it's time for the rundown. This is a new segment. We're going to talk about three questions. What are you reading, watching, and learning? And then we are going to surprise each other with a bonus question. So let's get started. What are you reading? I am currently reading The Rewind by Allison Wynn Scotch, which is a new release that came out at the end of last year and will be available very soon at JMRL. It's now available in the catalog to put your holds on, so go and search for it. The Rewind by Allison Wynn Scotch. And I am reading Four Treasures of the Sky by Jenny Tinghu Zong. The one fact that I will tell you about this book is that I have no idea what the title means, and I am about to start the epilogue. Next question in the rundown. What are you watching? Well, I just finished watching the one-hour Great Festive Baking Show special 
also known as the New Year's version of The Great British Baking Show. You can watch it on Netflix. So lately, I've been really into a YouTube channel called Kirkazart in a Nutshell, which is a YouTube channel that aims at sparking curiosity about science and the world we live in. My favorite video is from a few months ago called Change Your Life One Tiny Step at a Time. But it also covers really interesting stuff like why do black holes exist and what if there was only one person left on Earth? Very cool stuff. And now, what are you learning? Right now, I am learning about snail reproduction. That's right. We have a new fish tank in our house, and we have one fish, three snails, and four shrimp, and two of the snails have been mating constantly, and there is a huge clutch of eggs on top of the fish tank, so I'm really interested to see what happens there. I'm also learning about Ukraine, Afghanistan, and Peru for our upcoming Explore the World bags. I am learning about therapy horses and other large animals, such as cows, how they can assist with those needs for therapy. Very interesting stuff. I'm prepping for an upcoming book club, so it's very cool. And I've also continued my ASL or American Sign Language learning, and hopefully I will be at an intermediate level soon. Okay, now it's time for our surprise questions. Listeners, just so you know, We're calling these surprise questions because EJ does not know what I'm going to ask and I don't know what she's going to ask. I'm going to start EJ off with a nice, easy one just to warm us up. So EJ, if you could add anything to our collection, something to circulate, what would you add? That's actually a great question for me, Abby. I have lots of ideas of things I would love to circulate, but my number one that I would love to see happen would be a cake pan collection. They exist in other libraries. I've seen them. You may have seen them as well. Basically, it's a collection of cake pans that if you would like to make a bunt cake and you don't have that pan, you could potentially check it out from the library. We don't have one currently, but if, you know, wishing made it so, that would be what I would add to the collection. And now, Abby, my surprise question is about authors. If you could take any author, living or dead, to dinner, who would it be? You know who I'm going to choose is Jacqueline Woodson. I think I'm in the same page headspace right now because same page is coming up in a few months. It's going to be in March. And so we're getting ready for same page 2023. But two years ago, in 2020, Jacqueline Woodson was our same page author. The title was Brown Girl Dreaming. And I've read a few other of her books. I've read Red at the Bone and I've read Another Brooklyn. I love her writing. It makes me want to cry even now just thinking about Red at the Bone, which I read two years ago. And from the tiny bit that I know about her, she seems like a really cool person. And I would like to know more about her experience living in New York, living in Brooklyn, and just all about her. And I love her books. So I would choose her. Great answer, Abby. And speaking of same page, stay tuned listeners to the very end of this podcast where we will announce the 2023 same page author. We are ecstatic for March, and we cannot wait to see everybody at the Virginia Festival of the Book Same Page Programming. 
Long story short, Same Page is an amazing program, so we can't wait for you to participate. You will probably find your new favorite author that you will still be crying about two years from now and wanting to take them out for dinner. All right, listeners, you know what time it is. It's overbooked time. Welcome to our new season of Overbooked. This is part one of three about the historical fiction masterpiece, All the Light We Cannot See. Today, we will be focusing on characters and plot. Be sure to tune in for parts two and three to hear us discuss traditional book club questions and analyze more book characteristics such as setting, pace, tone, and writing style. If you followed our last season of Overbooked, you know that we followed a chronological structure. We discussed three chapters each episode. This time we're doing it differently. We're going by theme. So we hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to be discussing all the light we cannot see. And we wanted to start off by saying there will be spoilers. So if you haven't read the book yet, you can feel free to listen. It might pique your interest. But if you're worried about spoilers, you can always jump to farther along in the podcast episode. There are time codes in the show notes. So you can skip this part. You can read the book and come back. We're going to jump in. EJ had the great idea to talk about how characters relate to the title because it's an amazing title, All the Light We Cannot See. So EJ, do you want to just jump us off? Maybe pick a character or, or just start talking about how the characters relate to the title. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so to start us off with our first character is Marie-Laure LeBlanc. Marie-Laure LeBlanc is a 16-year-old. She starts at 12 in the book, and then most of the action happens when she's 16 years old. She is blind, and she has been blind from the age of six. So to answer the question, how does Mary Lore fit into the question of all the light we cannot see as a title, hers, I guess, would be the most obvious because she is blind. So everything that we hear from Mary Lore about her life and her adventures and her imagination and everything we hear from her is described in a way that is more about what's around her and how she feels. She can't see things in front of her, but she can hear. She has an exceptional ear and she also has a gift of curiosity for the world around her, despite her not being able to see it. There's so much you can say about Mary Lore's character development, but I think the thing that would make the most sense to start with would be her relationship with her father. He is the chief locksmith at the Paris Museum of Natural History. He is basically a single father. We never learn anything about Mary Laura's mother. So we assume that they have been just the two of them for quite some time. He created a full-scale, smaller-size replica of their city block from getting to her house to the museum so that Mary Laura could 
basically travel freely if she needed to throughout the you know, their part of Paris. Paris is a huge city. She obviously wasn't walking everywhere, but in her part of Paris, she knows exactly how many storm drains there are and how many steps it takes for her to get to the bakery or the butcher. When the occupation of Paris begins, when Mary Lore is about to turn 12 or had just turned 12, her and her father evacuate the city. First, they head to a friend's house They find the house up in flames. From there, they go to plan B, which is Mary Lore's great uncle, Etienne. Etienne is a huge part of the book. He is an incredibly well-written and well-rounded character and helps Mary Lore develop a lot of the skills that she has throughout the book. So to relate Daniel LeBlanc to the title, All the Light We Cannot See, it's a little bit more complicated because it's not as um, direct as just not seeing light, but instead a different type of light or a different light medium, which is a diamond. He, of course, works at a museum as the chief locksmith, meaning he has quite a bit of a responsibility before the occupation and the war begins. We hear a lot about his background at the museum, his director, and that he's pretty trusted. I get the sense that he was very trusted by people there. So trusted, in fact, that he was chosen to carry the diamond Sea of Flames. Was it real or was it the fake diamond? There were four diamonds, four people, four diamonds, Three fake, one real. No one knew where the real diamond went. And when the occupation started, the museum director sent these four people, Daniel LeBlanc included, out into the world to escape Paris with these diamonds, real or fake, in their pockets. So for him, his relation to the title has to do with whether or not he has the real Sea of Flames diamond. There is a very interesting and kind of immortal story that goes with the Sea of Flame diamond, which we'll talk about in our next episode under reader questions. But to relate another character, Etienne, to all the light we cannot see, a different type of light, light outside of your own home. Etienne is agoraphobic. Before people knew probably what agoraphobia was or how it completely affected your whole body and your ability to go outside. He cannot see the daylight, but yet through his own windows in his own house. He does not go outside and he has not gone outside for 20 plus years. Again, a different light that he cannot see. And to talk about the other main character, Abby is going to lead us in talking about Werner Fenning. Okay, Werner. So EJ is our resident German expert here. So she has been telling me how to say the names Werner and his sister Yutta, Yutta, Yutta. So we will be talking about Werner and Yutta um, and just some other characters, this whole coalition, because meanwhile, while Marie-Laure is in Paris, there's Werner in Germany. 
The first thing that comes to mind is that he has a love, a passion for radio. And so I'm thinking about light waves and radio waves and communication. We communicate through sight, showing things and experiencing sight together. But we also communicate, of course, through these invisible sound waves of radio or now these days podcasting. So it's interesting to think about all that power that you can't see, but that you can hear and experience. A different reader had this keen observation, all the light we cannot see. Werner's family, he's an orphan, and he was orphaned. His father worked in coal, like a coal mine in Germany. And so they made the great connection. That's a huge part of his character development is trying to avoid going down into the coal mines. That drives a lot of his decision making. And coal, of course, is a plant that has been condensed and whatever scientific process that happens, plants turn into coal after, what is it, millions of years or something. And of course, plants grow and survive through light, but you can't see that light once it turns into coal. Very powerful. But I think one of the most interesting things to consider is light as a symbol. You know, this is a novel. So, of course, we love to talk about symbolism and what it all means. Light is traditionally seen as good. And this title is All the Light We Cannot See. I think Werner, being a German character, working for the German side, There's a lot of darkness in his character. He witnesses a lot of darkness. He experiences a lot of darkness. And he even participates in a lot of darkness. But yet you can't not like him. He is a likable character. And so when I think about all the light we cannot see, I think about his company, his troop, his little band of friends, whether that be at school when he's in training or whether that be when he's on the German front and he's with a new set of colleagues at just 16 years old. And I think about the goodness that's inside them that so often we don't see or that we don't think about. And there are there's light inside of him that if this were a real story, which of course, you know, it's not, it's fiction, but if there were a real if this was a real story, there was light inside of Werner that a lot of people would not see because he did this, but no one else was around. Like when he saves Marie Lore at the end of the book. See, there's that spoiler I was talking about. So that's like a redeeming moment for him, but then he dies. Like no one knows about it. So that's, I think, where I would start with him. I also would love to talk about Frederick, who's his great friend at school. Frederick is very intellectual and just a a fascinating character as well, a little eccentric. He's also in this German prep school training to be a German leader. But just like Werner, he's a little bit on the outs. And all the light we cannot see for him, I think about him in the way that he is a lightness in in the school that Werner is not able to be. Like Werner, he is a dynamic character. He grows and changes, but he is not able to be the light inside the school that Frederick is. 
in the moment when the boys are told to dump water on a different boy over and over, they're dumping buckets and buckets of water. Frederick is the one who pours his bucket of water on the ground and says, I will not. He will not hurt someone else. He will not torture someone else. And that's an amazing piece of light within him. Again, so it's just interesting to think like all the light we cannot see. Well, that was seen. But it's like, was it seen by the world? Was it seen enough? Who gets to see it? Who does not see it? And I think we can just imagine, of course, that Frederick's story, his light, maybe we can think about the fact that it was not seen because in this German world, they would not allow it to be seen. They beat him to the point where he was so near death that he suffered severe brain damage. So his resistance, that light within him was not able to be seen. And... I just wanted to talk about how Mary Lore and Werner's stories or their thoughts and actions, how they collide at the end of the book, and also how similar their thought processes are. So both Mary Lore and Werner have a want to help people, but oftentimes don't know how to do so. So as Abby was describing with Werner, he did all of these little things to help Frederick behind the scenes. Like at night, he would polish Frederick's boots and, you know, he would make sure Frederick's uniform was in order. But what he didn't do is he didn't stand up for Frederick. He didn't say, stop beating my friend when he was beat up by the other kids in the school. And that happened for a couple of reasons. One, Werner is training to become a member of a hive mind in a sense where there is no individuality, like Abby said, and that's something that Frederick very much had. He wanted that light of his to shine, his individualism. Werner struggled with that kind of his whole life. He wanted to help people and oftentimes does, but finds himself in a situation sometimes where his inaction causes more problems than whatever action he might have been afraid to take. Because we hear as readers his internal struggle, what would happen to him if he stepped in and did something to stop this from happening to Frederick, you know? We hear when the tragedy happens in Vienna and he witnesses a mother and a daughter's death and the daughter haunts him for the rest of his days. He thinks about the inaction that he took then. What action could he have taken to stop it? His fear in doing so and then ultimately not doing so because in a way, the thought process of his school, this Nazi school that he went to, he didn't know how to rebel from it without ultimately losing his life. And he ended up, in a sense, losing his humanity because of it, because of the school, because of what was drilled into him at a young age. He went to the school when he was barely 12 or 13, and he struggles with his age and with his inhumanity that he feels like he has now learned. 
because of the school that he was essentially tricked into attending. He was told it was a school that he could advance his technology skills and his radio skills, which is something he was passionate about. And Abby touched a little bit on his passion for the radio. That started when he and Yuta were very small in the children's house where they lived after they were orphaned. And they got some semblance of hope, some semblance of light from French children's programming that he and his sister were able to find the right frequency on a stolen radio. And that unlocked a world in Yuta and in Werner's minds that I don't think ever could have been unlocked if not for those stories that he heard from these two French brothers who wanted to do the best they could to spread goodness and science and cheer and learning throughout the world, basically throughout anyone that would listen to their radio program. We find out later the connection between this radio program and Werner and Mary Lore. The radio program, the French brothers, were Mary Lore's great uncles. And that connection was mind-blowing when you're reading it. You realize it quickly. It happens fast early on in the book. There's a lot of description from Werner and Yuta's point of view about these French, amazing French scientists that Yuta writes letters to and drops in the post and just says, the professor, Paris, hoping it will get to them. It's how impactful they were. And then we hear that Etienne and his brother, Henry, they were the brothers. They were the French professors and scientists that put out this amazing program for children that Werner learned so much from and Yuta learned so much from. And now Mary Lore learned that connection as well from meeting a great uncle she never knew she had. I want to ask you a question, EJ. Since we're talking about characters, did you have a favorite character? Yes, I did have a favorite character. Uh, it was Etienne. Etienne, um, I, I just, I could understand the struggles that someone who has agoraphobia to be able to be brave enough to at the end of the novel and to have love for someone enough to be able to go out into the world after 25 years just to save his great niece. I just, I loved Etienne. I'm so happy he made it through the book unscathed. Another spoiler. But I loved Etienne. I thought his character development was great. I love his imagination and how much he loved his brother and his nephew and his great niece. And I, I loved him. I thought he was wonderful. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing this book in particular play out on screen, which it will be one year, maybe this year, maybe next. But to see how that could be portrayed so that people who maybe do suffer from social anxiety or agoraphobia or can see that strength can come in so many ways. And it doesn't mean you have to leave your home to get strength. But he became part of the resistance with really not leaving his house. He 
had a radio in his attic that was a big secret and helped the underground resistance. In fact, it was his information, Etienne's information, that ended up with the coordinates that shot down the gun that was at the location where Werner was that ended up trapping Werner for five days underground. His worst nightmare, darkness in a mind-like area. So again, the connections between all of these characters was just mind-blowing at times because you read it and then you're like, oh, it was his information that made the B Hotel fall to the ground, you know? So just a lot. Did you have a favorite character, Abby? It's so hard to say because I really did love them all because they were so different. But in another way, the world of this book was so beautiful for me because the people were all so beautiful. They were very thoughtful. I mean, without being like sickly sweet and and perfect little angels, I mean, they were just very thoughtful, very considerate people. But I think in reflecting on it, I'm, I think Werner's story has a lot of intrigue for me. And his story is very complicated. And, and we even talking about the book just a tiny bit, I feel like his story is the one that has so many questions that I still feel about it. Like we were asking, what is it like for him at the end? What was his character thinking? And even after getting to know him for the entire book, I don't know. I don't really know what he was thinking. We don't know if he was how he felt at the end, what he was going for, which I don't think is a a flaw of Anthony Doors. I think that was just a great way to portray a child, really, who was put in this situation. Our antagonist in, throughout the book is a German sergeant major called Weinhold von Ruppel. Von Ruppel is pre-war was a gemologist, which means he studies different gems and is very gifted in seeing when there's reels and fakes and things like that. And of course, he's tasked by the German army to find all of the most wanted and sought after works of art and diamonds and gems and statues and to get them all basically to Germany so that Hitler could create this magical city of all of the art and amazing things in this world and claim them all for Germany. So that is what von Ruppel's basic task is. But he is dealing with his own internal demons, his own issues, his own struggles, which makes him quite an interesting antagonist, a well-written antagonist because you just want to hate him. When you see this title, All the Light We Cannot See, the first thing that comes to mind is that Marie Lore is blind. But then you start thinking about how all of the characters are blind. We've been talking about how Werner was brainwashed, how he was blind to the suffering around him in so many ways. Like he was just too young to comprehend and and to have the capacity to do anything about it. And then you have von Ruppel, who is totally blind to the world outside of himself. He is so single-sided. He is so selfish. 
and he is willing to do anything. He's blind to everything else. He's so single-sided that he loses all of his peripheral vision. He just is so locked in. He has no sense of reality anymore. He has no sense of even his initial mission because he wants this one thing and one thing only, the sea of flames, because he wants that immortality that is supposedly associated with the diamond. He's very clever. He's very sly. It's what makes him a good antagonist. It would be quite boring if he just used brute force everywhere he went to get what he wants. Not saying he doesn't do that because he does, but he uses words, I think, more than anything else and actions and almost inaction to get what he wants. You know, he makes sure that Mary Lore's father is arrested. He makes sure that all of his belongings are searched. He spends five days in Etienne's house with Mary Laura trapped in the attic, trying to do everything she can to survive. He spends five days there searching for the sea of flames, five days searching for a diamond that could potentially give someone immortality. And the reason why he wants immortality is he is dying of cancer Throughout the whole book, he lives longer than he was given. At a certain point, he like heads off to another German city and goes to hospital and is told he has three months to live. And by the time we see him again, it had already been three months. So he'd lived longer. And then eventually, he, he, almost, he almost gets Mary Lore. He almost gets her in the grotto. He almost outsmarts Mary Lore to give him what he's always sought. But because she is so sharp and because she can listen to inflection so well, in fact, even Madame said that Mary Lore knows when someone is lying to them based on the inflection in voices. She has an offhanded comment where she says that. He let his eagerness get ahead of him and Mary Laura ended up outsmarting him. So I think that he, Van Rupel, struggles with a sense of reality because he in his head isn't in the war. You know, he's using the war for his own advantage, which lots of people do. But his is very overt. He very much wants that diamond and he is very much not going to stop at anything to do so. And he doesn't care about the other things he gets. You know, he just rattles off this painting and this painting and this painting and he doesn't care. He's not interested. He wants one thing in this search and that's the sea of flames. And everything that he does, every action he takes, every moment that we're introduced to him, he is advancing that want blind to everything outside of him and everything outside of that want, blinded by the thought of immortality. He is blind to other wants and other needs and also blind to the wants and needs of his own body. He does not take care of himself, even though he has cancer. He is so blinded by this diamond, it essentially kills him. 
doesn't overtly kill him, but it essentially kills him. His drive kills him. We don't know exactly how he died, but we can guess based on the scene. I also wanted to, speaking about how Werner's character, some of the more mysterious pieces are what intrigued me the most, but Anthony Doerr does not choose to show us the chapter when Werner goes back to the sea and retrieves the little model house that Marie Lore is so careful to put into the sea. He goes back, he retrieves the house, and we find out at the very end of the book that he takes the diamond out, throws it into the sea, and puts the key inside the house and then holds it with him. And I just like, oh, I wish that we, I just love that he omitted it because it makes me want it all the more. I mean, this is part of what makes him such a good writer. It also, I think it's amazing how it tells us so much about Werner without even having it be from his point of view. Why did he go back to the sea when Marie Lore was insisting with him so much? Is it in the ocean? It has to be in the ocean. He was like, yeah, it's in the ocean. It's pretty clear that she wants it to be gotten rid of. So why did he go back? You ask the question and then, I don't know. I mean, part of me is like, is it a final act of love? Like he wanted to make sure that it was really in the ocean. He wanted to make sure that whatever was in it really was thrown away forever. I also just think it says a lot about him that he clearly found the diamond and then chose to throw it into the ocean. So it just shows a lot about his character and what he chose to keep and how he chose to keep that house. I th- I think he may have kept the house to remember Mary Lore because once he saves her and they're okay and they go their separate ways. I mean, Werner had every opportunity to probably leave with Mary Lore disguised, not as a German soldier, but instead he goes a separate way than her and he eventually gets himself captured and then never eats again and dies. So his last meal is with Mary Lore his last thoughts are with Mary Lore. His last breath is almost asking how Mary Lore is. You know, the last thing we really hear him say is a girl, a French girl, a girl, you know, right when he's captured. And then we don't see him say much else because he's incapacitated. I also think his decision to not evacuate with Marie Laura was very mature and showed a lot about him because it was his way to further save her and not put her in danger. And for him to say, I deserve everything that's coming to me. I'm aware of what this army did and I'm aware that it was wrong. I saw so much hurt. I can't live as part of this group. So he becomes a deserter. I just, I think it was a mature decision for him to do that, but he had every opportunity not to. He could have left with Mary Laura. They could have ran off together, but maybe he didn't want that burden on Mary Laura, on Mary Laura's innocence. Yeah, his last moments stuck with me. Abby was there when I heard his last moments as I'm listening to the audiobook. 
I had an audible. You've got to be kidding me out of that. (laughs) I was surprised. I thought we would see more of Werner. I thought he would live and we would get to see what he did to help people after the war and what amazing intricate radios he started building and how excited he was for TV. But we didn't get to see that. Which is one final way that I feel like the title rings true. All the light we cannot see. We cannot see what Werner was going to become because he died. We even cannot see his friend, the giant. We don't even get to see all the light that was within him because it was really snuffed out from this PTSD, you know, war trauma. We cannot see what what became of them because they didn't have a chance to continue growing. Hope you all enjoyed this discussion of our overbook title, All the Light You Cannot See, the plot points and main characters and their connections. Give us your thoughts. Give us how you thought Mary Lore and Werner were connected. How did they connect to the title, All the Light We Cannot See? We'd love to hear what you have to say. Feel free to email us at podcast at jmrl.org to get involved. And now for our very special same page 2023 announcement. Our author is, drumroll please. Ross Gay, a poet and essayist who has written many a favorite book of EJ's, including The Book of Delights, which is what we're focusing on this year. Book of Delights by Ross Gay. Get your holds in now. Copies will go quickly. Thank you, listeners, for being a part of this podcast community. We're so happy to have you. We hope you'll join us in taking a moment to thank the friends of the library who generously support this endeavor. If you'd like to learn more or join the friends, you can head to their website at jmrlfriends.org. That's all for us today. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. Don't forget, you can get involved on social media or by emailing us at podcast at jmrl.org. We'd love to hear your rundown answers as well. Thanks for tuning in. We're glad to be on the same page. page.